How shall I begin my story that has no beginning? This is Esperanza. Esperanza Quintero. She's a housewife in New Mexico, living in a small town. When I was a child, it was called San Marcos. The Anglos changed the name to Zinktown. Zinktown, New Mexico, U.S.A. The image is black and white. Dusty roads, clothes swaying on laundry lines in the desert wind, shacks with corrugated tin roofs. Our roots go deep in this place, deeper than the pines, deeper than the mine shafts. Zinktown is owned by a mining company. All the land, all the houses, it all belongs to the company. I am a miner's wife. Eighteen years my husband has given to that mine, living half his life with dynamite and darkness. This is how the film Salt of the Earth begins. It's a portrait of a desolate place dominated by mining and by injustice. Mexican-Americans in town don't have running water in their homes, while Anglos, as the Mexicans call them, do. Mexicans are more likely to be killed in the mines because they're required to work alone, but Anglos are allowed to work in pairs. And Mexicans are constantly put down by their bosses and treated like dirt. On this day, Ramon, Esperanza's husband, is considering whether to go on strike with the other Mexican-American miners. They want to demand equal pay and safer working conditions. What happened next in this small New Mexico mining town is not just the plot of a dramatic film. It's real. The miners, the discrimination, the dangerous working conditions, and the strike. They're all based on a true story. From NPR and Futuro Media, it's Latino USA. I'm Maria Hinojosa. And today, how a strike in a small New Mexico town and the classic film it inspired still resonate today. The film, Salt of the Earth, was made only a year or so after the strike and released in 1954. It tells the story of how a group of Mexican-American miners took on a powerful mining company to demand their rights. Their 15-month-long strike includes some unexpected heroes, and we'll explain that soon. But first, you need to understand how radical the film was for the 1950s. Politicians at the time were determined to root out secret communists from Hollywood. There were even public interrogations of filmmakers. Are you now, have you ever been a member of the Communist Party? This is audio of the interrogation of filmmaker Herbert Bieberman in front of the House Un-American Activities Committee. Now, Mr. Bieberman, your purpose is to use this to disrupt the motion picture industry, to invade the right not only of me... Bieberman ended up serving time in prison and was blacklisted in Hollywood because of his suspected communist sympathies. And then he made Salt of the Earth, along with two other men who had also been blacklisted. It seems pretty clear that Salt of the Earth was an act of defiance. The government had sanctioned the filmmakers for leftist sympathies. So they made a movie that was unapologetically leftist. In 1954, the film was so controversial, only a few theaters across the U.S. would show it. Salt of the Earth was essentially buried from public sight for decades. But in the 1970s, Chicano and feminist movements embraced the film. 
They saw it as an example of what social justice movements could actually look like. In 2018, producer Sayer Quevedo traveled to Grant County, New Mexico, to uncover the story of what would come to be called the Empire Zinc Strike. He wanted to find out how a sleepy mining town erupted into protest, and if, almost 70 years later, anyone still remembers. Sayer Quevedo is going to take it from here. Before I tell you about what things are like in Grant County now, I'm going to tell you the story about how things were. And we're going to start with Arturo Flores. He was an important figure in the Empire Zinc strikes. Hi. Please come in. Thank you. Hello. Hello. Hi. Hi, how's it going? It's my dad, Arthur Flores. He's 100 years old. Hi. Hello. One of the first... President's uh, Local 890. The Local 890 is the name of the miners' union in Grant County, by the way. We're going to hear about it a lot. And Arturo Flores was a union leader there in the 1950s. I I have the original. Do not hear. It's okay. I have. Okay. However, I have no problem with talking. I'm a little over 100. I'm supposed to be dumb. (laughs) <laughs> you seem like you're doing just fine. <laughs> Arturo sits in a wheelchair. His thin silver hair is neatly combed. His son, Larry, lays out a set of old photographs on the table. Here's Dad, and here's some of the actors from the movie Clinton. Men walking out of the union hall, women in flannels and big-brimmed hats, smiling triumphantly at the camera. There's Arturo. He has a full head of thick black hair. The photo is labeled Local 890 Activists, 1953. I've come here to speak with Arturo because he is, as far as I can tell, one of the oldest living witnesses of the Empire's Inc. strikes. Since Arturo can't hear that well, I write questions down on a piece of paper and hold them up for him to read. Arturo tells me about his childhood in Grant County. The place in the movie, Zinc Town, isn't real, but the county is dotted with little mining towns. Arturo's dad worked in the mines, his mother was a homemaker, and Arturo was a smart kid. He loved to read. Before I was 12, I had read the Bible three times. I could read, I'd like to read so much. Arturo tells me the story about a countywide history competition when he was in sixth grade. He made it to the very last round and then lost. The teacher was very sad, came to me, and she said, you won. But you didn't get it to number one because it said they can't give it to a Mexican. That's the policy of the company, and they were hired by the company. Uh, The company at that time had a policy that Mexicans were treated differently. Mexicans were treated differently, he says. And the company Arturo is referring to is one of several companies that owned mines across Grant County. A historian, Ellen R. Baker, wrote a book about all of this called On Strike and On Film, and she explained just how much power the mining companies had. They owned the land and houses in some towns, and in other cases, actually owned whole towns themselves, which meant they could discriminate all they wanted. The company had houses for the Anglos and shacks for the Mexicans. Whole towns were divided. White people, or Anglos as they called them, on one side— and Mexicans on the other. Anglos were given higher-paying jobs in the mines, while Mexicans were forced to work underground for less. As a young man, Arturo Flores left for the military, and when he came back, he started working at the mine nearby, digging up zinc. 
The mine was run by the Empire Zinc Company. When I came back from the service, they treated me terribly. And I said, this is going to change. Arturo was a member of the miners' union at Empire Zinc Mine. Almost every mine in Grant County had a union. And so there were a lot of little unions, but they didn't work together to negotiate contracts or better working conditions. And their grievances were often ignored by the mining companies. Then, in the late 1940s, something changed. A representative from the International Union of Mine Mill and Smelter Workers showed up at Arturo's doorstep. His name was Clinton Jenks. He asked Arturo, are you the one who's been complaining? I said, yes. I said, we're divided. We have no power. They make fun of us. But we ought to do something. He said, yes. He said, but I need some help. Arturo worked with the national representative, Jenks, to bring the unions together into a single, more powerful group that would represent all of them. It was called the Local 890. By 1948, five of the unions had signed on. They bought an old building in the town of Deming to be their union hall. A couple years later, in 1950, the miners' contracts at Empire Zinc Mine came up for negotiation. This time, the workers demanded a 15-cent raise, two more paid holidays, and a change to the payment system that favored white miners. But the company refused to negotiate. That's when the men decided to go on strike. The film Salt of the Earth depicts these true events with a little extra drama. It's up to you, brothers. See, 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 And so it began, much like any other strike. There would be no settlement, the company said, till the men returned to their jobs. The men set up a picket line blocking the entrances to the mine. They carried signs. From the surrounding hills, they watched for scabs, miners who were trying to cross the picket line to work. Papa, we seen them. Two scabs over there. They're hiding over there in the gully. Empire Zinc Company drove miners from neighboring mines in the county to try to cross the picket line to work. Others chose to come on their own. There's some important context we have to explain here. So remember, this was a time of hysteria about communists, infiltrating Hollywood, the government, and unions. And in 1947, Congress passed this law known as the Taft-Hartley Act. It redefined the relationship between unions and employers. But most importantly for our story, it included this provision requiring all union officers to sign an affidavit swearing that they weren't communists. And if they didn't, they gave up their union's right to have their grievances heard by the federal government. The Local 890 had refused to sign it. And the company had no intention of compromising with Mexican miners, especially those who might also be communists. The strike did not end. It went on and on, into the fourth month, the fifth, the sixth. The company still refused to negotiate. Then, in the eighth month, lawyers from the Empire Zinc Company approached a local judge. Arturo Flores said they took advantage of a loophole. They went to court and said... The guys are closing the street. The company said that the strikers should not be allowed to block the road, and the judge ordered the strikers to stop. And because the local 890 had refused to sign those affidavits promising they weren't communists, they couldn't ask the government to help mediate the dispute. They were stuck. If we obey the court, the strike will be lost. 
the scabs will move in as soon as our picket line is gone. If we defy the court, our pickets will be arrested, and the strike will be lost anyway. What happens next ultimately changed the fate of this strike, turning it from an ordinary event into a historic one. If you read the court injunction carefully, you will see that the only prohibit striking minors from picketing. We women are not striking minors. We will take over your picket line. Women had been involved in the strike since day one, but they were often relegated to working behind the scenes, cooking for the strikers, collecting donations, handing out leaflets. They were the wives, sisters, and daughters of the miners. But now they had an idea. They would take over for the men. Those miners were not comfortable with the women's proposal. And what will happen when the cops come and beat our women up? Are we going to stand there? And watch them? No. We'll take over anyway. And we'll be right back where we started. Only worse. Even more humiliated. Brothers. Brothers. I beg you. Don't allow this. Mostly what shows in the film is the way they acted. Especially the guy who was supposed to have been the leader of the strike. This is maybe one of the most interesting tensions of the Empire's Inc. strike. The people who would have benefited most from having the women take over, the miners, were the ones who were against it. They were embarrassed. They knew that if the women were out blocking the roads, the men would have to stay home and take care of the kids. Clint asked for a vote of the city instead of just the members so that the women could vote. Every adult living in town was given a vote instead of just the union members, who were almost all men. All those in favor that the sisters take over the picket line will so signify by raising their hand. Aye! All those opposed. Some men silently lifted their hands into the air. But it wasn't enough. The motion has carried 103 to 85. And they voted overwhelmingly to be under strike. The women would replace the men on the picket line. And so they came, the women. They came from Sink Town and the hills beyond, from other mining camps 10, 20, 30 miles away. Women we had never seen before. Women who had nothing to do with the strike. Somehow they heard about the women's picket line, and they came. Meanwhile, the men took over at home. They had to take care of the house, and they found out that the women worked as hard as they did at and some things. This sudden change in social hierarchy wasn't easy for the men to handle. In the film, that includes the central couple, Esperanza and Ramon. Have you learned nothing from this strike? Why are you afraid to have me at your side? Do you still think you can have dignity only by have none? Talk of dignity, after what you've been doing. Yes, I talk of dignity. The Anglo bosses look down on you, and you hate them for it. Stay in your place, you dirty Mexican. That's what they tell you. But why must you say to me, stay in your place? Do you feel better having someone lord than you? Shut up. You're talking crazy. Who's next? The women understood that they were fighting for more than just the men's jobs. They were fighting to be given respect. And despite the discomfort, the reality was that the men did need the women to win. And the company knew that, too. According to the book by Eleanor Baker, the local sheriff hired a gang of new deputies paid for by the Empire's Inc. Company. Their job was to break up scuffles. 
but mostly they intimidated the women. They would arrive at the picket line and throw tear gas to try and disperse the crowd. They tried to drive their cars through the picket line. And at one point, they even threw the women in jail, along with some of their children. And then, in January 1952, over a year after the strike had begun, the company finally gave in and agreed to negotiate with the miners. They had won, all thanks to the women of Grant County. So that strike did one thing, as far as I'm concerned. It showed that the women could also get in the fight and be as militant as the men were and win if they had to, and they did. The men were able to go back to work, thanks to the women, and the miners received a wage increase, vacation benefits, a pension plan, and a health plan. It wasn't everything they asked for, but the miners had also won the confidence that if they worked together, they could be powerful. And soon, the real story of the strike was being turned into a film. Salt of the Earth was shot on location in Grant County, New Mexico, using many of the real miners and their families as actors. Because the writer, producer, and director, the man you heard earlier, Herbert Bieberman, had all been blacklisted in Hollywood, it was not easy to finish the film. And when it was released in 1954, almost no theater would show it. But in the decades that followed, Salt of the Earth would be embraced by activists for its depiction of workers, Chicanos, and women's empowerment. In 1992, the film was included in the National Film Registry at the Library of Congress, a symbol of its importance to American culture. Two weeks after I talked with Arturo Flores, the local 890 leader, his son informed me that he had passed away. He was 100 years old. I found myself coming back to the last thing he said to me during the interview. I've been reading up on history. I like to read history a lot because I think that if you read history, you'll find out how societies advance, how they become powerful, and how they dissolve, and why. You know what dissolves societies? Greed. Greed, he said, is what dissolves societies. At the end of the Salt of the Earth film, Esperanza looks out triumphantly at the town. Then I knew we had won something they could never take away. Something I could leave to my children, and they, the salt of the earth, would inherit it. The miner's victory, she seems to say, will mean a better life for future generations. It's been nearly 70 years since the Empire's Inc. strike. So what did future generations inherit? I went to Grand County to find out. Coming up, Sayer discovers that the memory of a successful movement is hard to keep alive. Stay with us. No te vayas. 
This message comes from NPR sponsor BetterHelp, a truly affordable online counseling service. Fill out a questionnaire online and get matched with a licensed counselor best suited to your mental health needs. Whether it's depression, anxiety, or trauma, BetterHelp will help you overcome what stands in the way of your happiness. Learn more at BetterHelp.com and get 10% off your first month with promo code LATINO. BetterHelp. Get help anytime, anywhere. Until recently, Edmund Hong says he didn't speak out against racism because he was scared. My parents told me not to speak up because they were scared. But I'm tired of this. Listen now on the Code Switch podcast from NPR. Hey, we're back. So we've heard the story of a strike in New Mexico's Grant County in the early 1950s. And we've heard about the film that it inspired called Salt of the Earth. Now, producer Sayer Quevedo takes us back to Grant County to find out how the strike is remembered and what's been forgotten. So before we start this journey, I want to give you a lay of the land. You're going to hear a lot of names. Silver City, Fierro, Santa Rita, Hanover, Bayard. These are all towns in Grant County, all within about 15 or 20 minutes of each other. And we're going to begin in the town of Bayard. How are you doing? Good, how are you? Terry Humble picks me up in front of the local library. He was a kid when the strike happened and remembers it pretty well. Later, he became a miner like his dad before him and a member of the union, the local 890. Now he writes about the mines and he gives guided tours of the county. Usually it's in a bus, but today, since it's just me, we take his truck. Well, as close as, let's go down to the Union Hall first. Of course, we're in downtown Baird. Population, oh, pretty close to 3,000. And it'll never get any bigger because it's completely surrounded by mountains and company land. From here, I can see the low, wheat-colored hills and slate rocks and hills of mining waste. They look like brown, beige, and red aquarium sand. Trucks pass us heading towards the mine. The men inside them wear neon reflective vests. Things seem pretty quiet this morning. Yeah. Yeah, it's a quiet little town. This is our uh, Union Hall here. And this was the Union Hall also during the uh, Salt of the Earth strike. Might if we get out and look at it? No, not a bit. The local 890 Union Hall is still the original old building they bought back in the 1940s. It's where the miners used to meet during the strike. It was also a community center. It's where they held parties, baptisms, and other celebrations. A mural on the front wall of the building tells the story of the Empire Zinc strike. There's even a painting of the women with their signs, dancing in a circle and laughing. The women, of course, would get out and dance once in a while just for something to do and carry their placards. If you go to open the door of the Union Hall, you'll find it locked. Looking through the window, it's like someone left for the day and never came back. There's a local 890 member jacket hanging on the wall, filing cabinets full of documents, and a bottle of cold medicine, half full, still sitting on one of the desks. And I used to have a key, but uh, 
They yeah, changed it's... all the locks. In the years after the Empire's Inc. strike, the local 890 hit a rough patch financially. They burned through a lot of their money defending themselves in court for their refusal to sign that affidavit that confirmed they weren't communists, and for arrests made during the strike. But still, Terry says the union's base remained strong for decades. And uh, we would always have anywhere from, I would say, 30 to 100 people on our monthly meetings because uh, it was a large union. I don't know, it had several hundred members. We would almost invariably have some of the old-timers that had retired years ago, but they were so strong union, boy, they were there to, to, to give support. And they would always get up and give a little talk to the newcomers, you know, to let them know, says, don't take what you've got for granted. You know, you're getting a fantastic wage and benefits. Don't take it for granted because we had to win it for you. The metal mining industry can be very unstable. When demand is high, the mines hire more people. When prices dip, companies lay off miners or even shut down their operations. In 2008, hundreds of miners were laid off here from the mines after copper prices went down under $2 a pound. And so even though the union won important benefits for the miners, it couldn't entirely protect them. Do the younger people in this town know, do you think, know much about the history of what has gone down here in terms of the strikes in the union and, and the mines? Irregrettably, no. The younger people had the benefits when they started to work. They didn't have to go on strike or do anything. They didn't have to negotiate to get the benefits. And they just figured they were there. They took them for granted. So it's unfortunate, but the younger generation does not know that much about the history of the unions or seem to care. Unions in Grant County have followed the trend of unions across the United States. In fact, rates of union membership nationwide peaked in 1954, just after the Empire's Inc. strikes. The number of people in unions has been on the decline ever since. The way Terry tells it, Every company that went on to own mines in Grant County tried to undercut the power of the union. And every few years, someone in the union would apply for decertification. Basically, that means shutting the union down. They never got enough votes to pass it, until 2014. Decertification was brought to a vote again, and it passed. That was the end of the Local 890. <laughs> Terry drives us back up that same main street that runs through Bayard. Along the way, he points out the Empire Zinc mine. This is probably as close as you'll get to the mine. Two years after the strike, Empire Zinc shut down operation for a time, meaning many of those who had fought for better conditions there were now without jobs. Eventually, the mine shut down for good in 1967. The town that Terry and Arturo are from, Santa Rita, is just a giant open mining pit now. Hanover and Fierro, the two towns where most of the Empire's Inc. miners once lived, are now mostly empty, except for a handful of houses. But mining is still the largest employer in the county. You don't have to look far for evidence of that. Now, just six months ago, that mountain was 50 feet taller. That's Hanover Mountain. And that's what they're gonna, they're knocking it down all the way and hauling it over to Santa Rita because it's full of copper. But that, that thing was a lot taller six months ago. They're literally moving mountains to... Yep, they are. And then when they get down at the bottom and, and get rid of the mountain, if the copper continues, which they think it does, it'll be an open pit. Just like Santa Rita? Yeah, they'll keep hauling it, yep. 
It's almost like an inverse mountain. That's, uh, <laughs> That's a, good, a good way to put it, uh -huh. an inverse mountain. I make one more stop with Terry. We arrive at a bridge and get out. Tucked off on the side of the bridge, there's a small cement block with a plaque. Terry reads, This bridge is dedicated to the Mine Mill Women's Auxiliary of 1951-52. These brave women took over the picket line. The only sound on this little road is of the haul trucks from the mines humming down the mountains in the distance. This is where the women used to picket during the strike. Terry says that when Salt of the Earth was made, the strike scenes were filmed in hidden places, away in the hills, where no one could see. Because uh, if they came out here and tried to make the movie, they'd, people would show up and start throwing rocks and stuff at them because there was so much bad feelings against the Union people. Even after that? Even the, after this day. You can talk to a local person that was alive or involved in any way, and you'll know in 15, 20 seconds which side they were on. So it's still something that carries weight for folks. Yes, it still has a stigma to it, actually. They were talking about making the Union Hall a little museum, and I immediately got two phone calls from elderly Anglos that said, what in the world are they trying to do? They can't stir that stuff up. We've got to stop them. And I mean, that was just a year or so ago. But the strike still has admirers. During one of the anniversaries, Terry remembers seeing lots of Latinos, many of them who had lived in the area but moved away. They came back to pay their respects. And there were also newcomers to the town who were curious about the history. Boy, one time, one of the uh, salt of the earth anniversaries, I think we had five buses and must have had 11 cars following the buses and people got here. And, and we even at that time had a couple of the old ladies that were on the picket line. One of them just passed away a few days ago. The woman who passed away just a few days before I met Terry, her name was Juana Sierra. There's a video of her from one of the Salt of the Earth anniversaries, standing in front of this plaque, surrounded by a small crowd. Juana is describing being taken to jail and beaten by sheriff's deputies. It's hard, and I hope that you don't feel the way I used to feel. And they, when they took us over there, I'm going to die. I'm going to die for my people. This is the only voice you'll hear in the story of one of the women who walked the picket line in the Empire's Inc. strikes. To tell you the truth, when I went to New Mexico, I was mostly interested in hearing from the women. But there were very few left. There's one named Rachel, who I tried to meet and to call over and over, and she clearly didn't want to talk. Remember, the strike happened in the 1950s, so most of those who participated are gone or dead. The people that were old enough to actually be on the picket line as adults, there may be one or two of the women left, so I don't know of anybody for sure that's alive. Grant County is a shifting landscape full of hollowed spaces, visible and invisible. Underground tunnels that go for miles, pits that expand, mountains that shrink. And the collective memory that once tied these communities together is also, like the mountains, slowly disappearing. Later that night, I head to the house of Willie Andasola. He was a small kid when the strike happened. I wanted to hear what Willie remembered from the strike and his take on what's happened since. Hi, how are you? The inside walls of Willie's garage are covered in bumper stickers that say things like, 
wish you were beer or everyone needs something to believe in. I believe I'll have another beer. Hi, Willie. nice to meet you. Sir, or Sir, or Sairi. Sangri. Sairi. Sandi. Uh, There's a little fire crackling in the furnace, and Willie's friend Roger is with us. You can hear him in the background sometimes. Did you t- take him to the where it happened, the strike? Uh, you know? Terry Humble took him for the right. Oh, okay, Terry Humble. Now, that's a good information with Terry Humble. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he knows. Well, I can tell you, I was I was really too small, man. You know, no, my, my dad worked at the mine, etc. You know. But... To show the support, the women, my mom went over there. Willie's mom was one of the women strikers. He was about six years old, and what he remembers most clearly is the day that he was taken to jail. This was when the sheriff's deputies were trying to intimidate the women. If they were with their children, the kids were also put behind bars. My, my brother was a baby. My mom still had him in the arms. And I remember, uh, you know, this policeman yanked me, man. I thought he was going to tear my arm off and put me in the car. They took us to jail. But it was too damn crowded. I remember a girl, a little girl passed out, you know, because we were small and we were in the back. We couldn't breathe. It was not enough. But the women took care of me. One of those women was Juana Sierra, the striker who passed away the other day. Something that you don't forget. Did you ever watch the film? Do you remember watching it? The movie? No. I didn't want to see it. My mom didn't want me to see it. My dad didn't want me to see it. So we didn't get to see it, you know, because they said it's not going to help you. It's going to make probably things worse. Because sometimes I would, would wake up yelling. Now, if I want to see it nowadays, maybe, you know, maybe. I, I don't think so. It just brings memories. They haven't gone. Memory is a sensitive thing for Willie and for many of those who lived through the strike. I've heard of other children of strikers who've also never watched the film. Even though the strike was ultimately successful, for the strikers' children, many of whom were too young to understand what was happening, it was a scary time. Of course, in Grant County, it's hard to avoid reminders of that moment, especially the mines themselves, whose abandoned entrances you can see from the road. Willie also went on to work in the mines. And the benefits were great, you know, because of the union. They were bringing people, promoting people to be supervisors. He says he was asked to be a supervisor three times, and he didn't want it. But the strong union guys, the old-timers, talked to me and said, look, take it. He said, look what they're doing to us. These people, they're not even from around here, you know, and you are. So finally, Willie said yes. My mom quit talking to me. She called me vendido. I don't know how to pronounce it in English, vendido. Sold. She was really disappointed. Sold, or sellout, is what she called him. Willie and his mom didn't speak for three years. In her eyes, her son was cozying up right next to the same people that had dragged her to jail when he was a child. They were able to reconcile, but his mom still talked about the union. She always told me, okay, don't forget, don't forget your union in here. Willie says his children didn't show much interest in the history of the strike, and he encouraged them to get an education so they wouldn't have to work in the mines. 
so they could have the kind of freedom he didn't have, including the freedom to forget. On my last day in Grant County, Mary Lou Chavez takes me to a cemetery in the town of Fierro. It's one of the towns where many of the miners from the Empire Zinc strike lived. It's mostly abandoned now. In my search for people who remembered the strike, Mary Lou is one of the last names on my list. She's wearing sweatpants and a hoodie with Minnie Mouse printed on the back. Mary Lou reminds me there's a funeral tomorrow, the one for Juana Sierra, the striker who passed away the other day. This lady that they're going to bury tomorrow, two of her brothers got killed in the mine. I want to see their graves. Mary Lou's a part of a committee in charge of the upkeep of the cemetery and the church, the last two monuments of what used to be Fierro. Sometimes I just come and walk around the cemetery and the memories are good here. I wish those old days were back. She remembers how they used to leave their doors unlocked, how the neighborhood kids would dart around each other's houses, playing cowboys and Indians. The cemetery is freckled with worn-down tombstones and crosses. A big metal Jesus watches over the place. From here, you can still hear the sound of trucks coming down from the mine. See. Uh-huh. We approach a set of graves. And there's a sister that's going to get buried here tomorrow. She points to a little plot of unoccupied earth where Juana will be buried. Ask her whether she thinks the next generation will take on the upkeep of the cemetery when she's gone. We hope so. We hope so because somebody has to do it. Mary Lou tells me she plans to be buried in the cemetery too, surrounded by the people she grew up with, the miners and strikers, the kids she used to play with. Every social movement has to contend with what the next generation will do with its victory, and Grant County is no different. What the strikers fought for was better wages and working conditions. But in another sense, they fought for the future of their children. And those children, the salt of the earth, did inherit something that could never be taken away. Choices. To stay or to leave. To keep the union or not. To work in the mines or not. To remember or forget. And what the next generation does with those choices, their inheritance, will be entirely up to them. Our thanks to producer Sayer Quevedo for reporting this story. Special thanks to Sarah Maloney, Sonia Dixon, Roger Duarte, Michelle Kells, Larry Flores, and Ellen R. Baker, who wrote the book On Strike and on film, Mexican-American families and blacklisted filmmakers in Cold War America. And if you're interested in learning more about the strike, you can read testimonials from strikers and their families online at the Salt of the Earth Recovery Project, linked on our website. (laughs) 
This episode originally aired in May of 2019. It was produced by Sayer Quevedo and edited by Allison McAdam. The Latino USA team includes Miguel Macias, Sofia Palizaca, Luis Treyes, Janice Yamoka, Julieta Martinelli, Ginny Montalvo, Alisa Escarce, and Alejandra Salazar, with help from Raul Perez. Our engineers are Stephanie LeBeau and Julia Caruso. Additional engineering this week by Leah Shaw. Our director of programming and operations is Natalia Fidel-Holz. Our digital editor is Amanda Alcantara. Our New York Women's Foundation Ignite Fellow is Julia Rocha. Our interns are Sofia Sanchez and Marie Mendoza. Our theme music was composed by Zenia Rubinos. If you like the music you heard on this episode, stop by latinousa.org and check out our weekly Spotify playlist. I'm your host and executive producer, Maria Hinojosa. Join us again next time. And in the meantime, look for us on all of your social media. Te veo allí. Ciao. Latino USA is made possible in part by the Ford Foundation, working with visionaries on the front lines of social change worldwide. The John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation. And W.K. Kellogg Foundation, a partner with communities where children come first. Where are you, Sayer? Sayer. Sayer, are you ready? Sayer!